right, guys, we're finally back with another episode. I want to apologize for the delay once again. Uh, the month of May should be much more open. I plan to get two or three more out just this month. I've got my eyes set specifically on a, on a couple more episodes that Leighton has done on important topics, um, which brings me to a couple brief points. Um, I can't know what you guys want or are thinking about this podcast unless you talk to me. And the few people who have talked to me have all actually, to my surprise, been you know, in support of responding over and over and over again to Leighton Flowers specifically. You know, I sort of expected maybe people would get bored of it, but so far, the only comments I've heard have been, please keep doing more, and so that's what we're going to keep doing. Um, one more thing about Leighton, we actually got his attention in the last episode, and I want to thank him for actually taking the time to uh, listen to about 20 minutes of the last episode, and not just listen, but type out some very fairly detailed comments and points about his position, the fact that he would take the time to do that is to be commended, and I definitely appreciate it. Um, and the fact that he would spend time on a video, which has hardly any views, and, and, and take the time to not just listen but comment, I definitely respect that, because I know he's busy, and I know he has much bigger fish to fry. Um, the only things we can hope for is that as we go through forward with this podcast, making more and more and more responses that maybe at some point we'll be making the sorts of arguments that actually warrant some sort of interaction. Um, but we definitely, once again, appreciate that Leighton would take the time to do that. Um, in this episode, we're going to be talking about Ephesians 1. It's going to be a continuation of the last episode in the sense that it's based on election. Uh, last episode, we covered unconditional election versus conditional election. And I do need to, you know, put out a little bit of an apology to Leighton if he hears this, because in the last episode I was proceeding on the presumption that he was, as a free will proponent, coming from a conditional election viewpoint. Right? That's what the that's what the typical argument and debate is going to be over most of the time. Is election conditional or unconditional? It's not over whether or not election is individualistic or corporate. Right? And so. As we listen through what he's going to say today, and this he's this, it's a continuation of it's the same clip I'm reviewing, but he finally goes in and where he starts talking about Ephesians one, we're actually going to see that he's putting forth the corporate election view. He's not putting forth an individualistic conditional election view, which is the traditional historical Arminian position. As a provisionist, he is putting forth the corporate election view. And so while I still maintain that my last episode serves the purpose of arguing against the conditional election view, I do want to apologize having put that view onto Leighton, because Leighton is clearly, as you're going to hear in this episode, he is clearly coming from a corporate election viewpoint. And so we're going to switch over, switch gears, and argue from that standpoint in this particular episode. So in this episode, I'm going to read through Ephesians 1 first from a Calvinistic standpoint. And then we're going to talk about what corporate election is. It's a very simple concept in and of itself. And then we'll let Leighton hear, talk for himself. It's about four or five minutes. And then we'll go back through what he says, chop it up, and comment along the way to show why corporate election can sound really good, but does not and cannot be forced into what Ephesians 1 is so clearly saying. All right, so let's get started uh, going quickly through Ephesians 1 here, the first, we're going to go one, verses 1 through 14, and I just want you, to, this will be from a Calvinistic standpoint, very briefly, and I want you to notice the reason it's very brief is because there's not much to say other than what's being said. It's a very clear, 
straightforward passage that goes from start to finish. And so just keep that in mind. There's just there's not much to say here other than what's being said. Okay. Uh, verse one, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God. People usually skip over this. But what does it mean? What did Paul mean when he said, I'm an apostle by the will of God, right? Obviously, he was an apostle by his choice, right? Paul chose to be an apostle. Paul was willing to be an apostle. He wasn't forced to be an apostle, right? Paul understood that he had a will, that he made choices. Um, and yet he recognizes that ultimately the will of God is the ultimate reason behind why he was willing to do those things. So from a Calvinist standpoint, the will of God can include the will of man. Right? Not in a reactive sense, not in the sense of he has to work around our will or cooperate with our will as if we're on his level. Right? That's not how Paul understood uh, the will of God. The will of God for Paul, as you're going to see multiple times in this passage, talks about what God wills to come to pass, the purposes he has in particular things. And in this case, he is an apostle by the will of God. Okay? Ultimately, he made choices, he was willing to do these things, and yet he recognizes. The ultimate reason is the will of God. And he's writing to the saints who are in Ephesus who are faithful in Jesus Christ. Now, a lot of people like to say, oh, look, they're faithful in Jesus Christ. Look at there's free will. Not so fast. Once again, of course, people are willing and choose to believe in Jesus Christ. Right? But ultimately, if Paul just said he's an apostle by the will of God, doesn't it logically follow that people are faithful in Christ by the will of God as well? Right? So it's important to understand what does it mean to say that that is by the will of God? Well, you're going to see by the end of this passage, what that means. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of, Jesus, of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Okay? Now he's talking to Christians, obviously, in time. It's important to remember. But in verse 4, he's going to talk about what God did in eternity past regarding us. Right? Verse 4. Even as he chose us in him, that's in Christ, before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him in love. So, he chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. Who, who or what did he choose? He chose us. He's talking to Christians. He's including himself. God, And so we can include ourselves. God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. He chose us as persons. Right? And it doesn't matter. People, You know, Leighton's going to point out in a minute here, oh, well, you didn't exist before the, before the foundation of the world. That is a laughably irrelevant point because we did exist in the mind of God before uh, the foundation of the world and the whole point here is he's going to mention the purpose of God the plan of God the will of God the purpose of God God working all things of course we existed in the mind of God we didn't exist physically as a, as a creation yet but we did exist in the mind of God and that's his that's his entire point he chose us individual people he chose specific people in Christ before the foundation of the world that we those specific people, those same people who were chosen, should be or would be holy and blameless before him. And that takes place in time. Okay? So it's important to recognize the distinction between Paul talking about what God does in eternity past and what works out as a result of his eternal choice in time. Okay? Salvation happens in time. Salvation is the temporal, time-bound, storyline-level outplay of God's eternal decree of election. This is how Calvinists would describe it. Um, in love, verse 5, he predestined us, right? Did he predestine uh, something or someone? He predestined us, people, the same people he chose in Christ. He predestined them 
for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ. So they're predestined to be adopted. The adoption happens in time. The adoption is part of the temporal outplay of what has been predestined. You cannot predestine someone to a particular end without also predestining how they get to that end, right? This is very simple logic, right? And as you'll see, Paul's going to end this passage with the conclusion that if God has predestined uh, this particular end for us, this salvation end, us being holy and blameless before him in love, being adopted, he, um, he points out that God is the one working all things after the counsel of his will according to this purpose, right? Since God has predestined that end for us, he is working all things toward that end, and he's not going to fail when he does it. He predestined us, predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. Uh, there we go again, the purpose and will of God. Verse 6, to the praise of his glorious grace. So why is God doing this? Is it necessarily for our benefit? We covered this in another episode when Leighton got a little emotional about things and starting talking about how he would you know, appeal to little Timmy or Johnny and what sounds good or this or that. Of course, we benefit and are privileged to benefit from God's gracious acts. But he's doing it for himself. He's doing it to glorify himself, to the praise of his glorious grace. The praise, right? Which he has blessed us in the beloved. Verse 7, in him, that's in Christ, we have redemption through his blood. Now he's speaking present tense, right? We have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, According to his purpose, there's purpose again, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and earth. So God chose specific people, us, in Christ before the foundation of the world. He predestined us for adoption. And this is all according to his purpose that he set forth in Christ before the foundation of the world as a plan for the fullness of time. Okay. Verse 11, in him we... The same people, right? We, the ones who were chosen in Christ, predestined uh, uh, for adoption, we have obtained an inheritance in time. Yes, it, it happens in time. Why? Having been predestined, who was predestined? We were predestined according to the purpose of he, him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Okay? If God has predestined particular ends for people, in this case, us and our salvation, it logically follows that God must be in control of all things from start to finish. Our entire existence from the day we're born until we're saved and on through eternity. If God is predestined that we will be saved, he is also predestined how and why and when we be we end up saved. Okay? It's just logical. It's as, it's as logical to Paul as it is to anybody else because he says in conclusion that God is working all things after the counsel of his will. This is our assurance, right? This is the same, same author for Romans 8 when Paul talks about nothing will separate us from the love of God. Um, why is that, right? Nothing's going to separate us from the love of God in Jesus Christ because those whom he predestines, calls, justifies, glorifies, nothing separates them from the love of God because nothing can. God is in control of everything, right? And I always like to point out if free will were true, then something could separate you from the love of God, you could, with your free will. That's precisely what free will teaches and is stuck with. They have to violate Paul's entire claim and Paul's entire basis for assurance that God's purpose, when, when God chooses someone in Christ and predestines them to be saved, 
it will not fail. God will not fail. Nothing will separate that person from his love in Jesus Christ because he's working all things after the counsel of his will. This is consistent with the overall Calvinistic position that I have laid forth in the past four episodes that God is in control, meticulously, yes, absolute, exhaustive control of all things. Every particle of his of existence that he has created, he upholds it all by his power, moment by moment by moment, and nothing can even come to pass apart from his power. He must bring it about by his power. He must work it. He must cause it, however you want to word it. This is consistent. Okay, this, this is consistent application of this idea. Verse 12, so that we who are the first to hope in Christ might be the praise of his glory. Now, verse 13 begins to talk about the things that we do in time. Okay? Again, Paul was an apostle in time, became an apostle, chose to be an apostle, chose to believe in God in time, and yet still says it's by the will of God. Still includes that in the all things that God was working. So when verse, that, verse, verse 13 says, In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Now, everybody likes to point at this verse and say, Ah, oh, look, look, there's us. There's our free will, right? Well, it's, it, it's not free will, but there is our will, right? There's our choice. We believed in him. But why would you separate? Right? This is coming after everything Paul has already said. So when Paul lays out from start to finish um, the fact that you're chosen in Christ, predestined, so on and so forth, and then God is working all things, why would you read the fact that you're believing the gospel in time and assume free will? Why wouldn't you assume that you believing the gospel in time, the gospel being brought to you, you hearing the gospel, you believing the gospel, is also all part of what God has predestined, purposed, planned, and is working after the counsel of his will? Which is more, which is more consistent with the context? What did Paul just say in the previous verse? Right? So when people try to point out that, oh, look, you heard the gospel and believed in him, yeah, um, how can you separate that out and try to draw some sort of free will assumption out of it, right? That's my question. Verse 14, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. So as you can see, that this is a very straightforward, simple passage. The entire point of this passage is that Paul is explaining to Christians why they are now believing, why they are now Christians, why they are now saved, right? Paul is explaining to Christians why they're saved. And he doesn't give give the free will answer, right? He doesn't say, God's made it possible, uh, but but you come along with your free will and actuate the things that God has made possible. That's not Paul's point at all. Paul says that the reason you are right now believing in Christ is because of all the things that God has done. Not, the, not, not what you've done, right? All the things that God has done for you specifically. These effectual things. Right? He, he chose you in Christ before the foundation of the world that you would be holy and blameless. It's effectual. In love, he predestined you for adoption to himself as a son or daughter through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. And his will is not going to fail. It's not going to be thwarted. Right? And once again, he works all things. Right? If he's predestined an end, he has to work all things toward that end, logically speaking. And he works all things after the purpose and counsel of his will. Okay? Your will is most certainly included as part of God's will. Part of the things that God is working. Not working around, 
not reacting to, but God is working all things, including your will, your willingness to believe at a specific point in time. As it says in the, the next verse, you, you heard the gospel and you believed it. Why? Is it because of free will? No, it's ultimately because God worked that out. He worked out that you would believe. It's all part of what God has predestined for you. So the point here is not that you don't have a will or were forced or are a robot or anything like that. All these non-Calvinistic false assumptions that come into play if God is in control of all things. The point here is that since God is in control of all things, all of the things that you do are part of the picture. They're part of what God has planned and purposed and predestined and is working, right? And so what we're going to do is move into a, uh, a continuation of the, the last episode's clip where we were listening to Leighton Flowers, because what he does is he spends four or five minutes. It's not very long in, in real time, but when we're going to break it down, it's going to be quite a bit to talk about. But he's going to go through and give his little run through of Ephesians 1. And it's going to be coming from a what is known as a corporate election perspective. So last episode, we talked about unconditional election and the difference between conditional and unconditional election. So historically, the mainstream views have been conditional election from Arminians and unconditional election from Calvinists, right? We covered last episode, unconditional election, meaning that God's reasons for choosing particular people in Christ before the foundation of the world were not found in the people. They were found in himself and the purposes he has in the existence of the, the, per, the, the particular person that he is choosing to save in time. Okay, so and I, and I showed how that is an active choice on God's part. It's not a reactive choice. I showed why it's not random or arbitrary at all, at all on God's part because he is creating custom tailoring specific people for specific reasons and purposes. And sure, at the end of the day, we can categorize them into two general categories of saved and unsaved, right? or destined for heaven, destined for hell, however you want to word it. The point is, the reason election is unconditional is because God, as the divine author, is creating, thinking up, planning out his characters, his creatures, their entire existences, and since God is not going based upon you know, uh, causative influences from outside of himself, since he's the only thing that exists before creation, he must be actively planning it all. Covered that in the last episode. That's Calvinism, that's unconditional election. The other mainstream view is the opposite of that, which is conditional election. Conditional election is that God chose specific people in Christ before the foundation of the world, but he chose the people who he foresaw or foreknew would believe. So the condition is faith, and those whom God foresees will believe in Christ in time, those are the ones he chooses in Christ in eternity past. So God's choice in election in the conditional election rather than being active it is reactive he is reactively choosing people based upon a particular condition that they meet now what's important to notice about these two views is that they're both specifically talking about god choosing individuals okay it's personal god is choosing specific people in Christ, before the foundation of the world, before anything exists, in his mind, in his plan, and in his purposes. Both of these views, Calvinist and Arminian, have a personal view of election. What Leighton Flowers is going to put forth here is known as a corporate election view. And the entire, what I'm trying to get at here is the entire reason the corporate, uh, 
corporate election view has come about is to get around and get away from the idea of election being personal. Okay, And as you're going to hear him lay out here, his entire point is that God was not choosing specific people in Christ before the foundation of the world. God was choosing a plan. He was setting up a plan whereby people with their free will can be, take part of, in that plan in time. Okay, Long story short. But the point is that it's trying to get away from the idea of personal election, okay? Uh, and you'll see at the very end of this episode why even if everything I'm about to say and interact with uh, uh, Leighton Flowers on his, on his viewpoint of corporate election, even if everything I say is wrong or can just be ignored or whatever, at the end of the day, I'm going to demonstrate with a, with a simple logical argument why even corporate election cannot escape the idea of God electing specific people, specific individuals. Now, before we hear what Leighton has to say, I want to just briefly explain the idea of corporate election um, before you hear him lay it out. Because even he's going to start off by saying, well, this is just really simple. It's just so easy to understand. It's not rocket, you know, rocket theology, so to speak. And he's right in the sense that corporate election as a concept is very simple. The concept is very simple, as I'm about to explain it. What's not simple is trying to word it and fit it into what Ephesians 1 says. And that's the point I really want to drive home by laying this out first. The concept of corporate election is very simple, okay? God, in the corporate election viewpoint, God is not choosing, before the foundation of the world, he is not choosing individual people, specific people. What he's choosing is that people who make up a group in time, he's choosing a group, the faithful in Christ, as he's about to say, he's choosing that, the faithful in Christ, will be made holy and blameless. So God isn't choosing us in Christ that we will be made holy and blameless as individuals, which is what Ephesians, what, what the verse clearly says, because it uses the personal pronouns. But instead, God is choosing that those who are faithful in Christ will be made holy and blameless. So he's not choosing the individuals. And, and, and when it talks about predestined. He predestined us to adoption. God is not predestining individuals to adoption. What he's predestining is that those who are faithful in Christ will be adopted, okay? So this concept is is very simple, right? It's getting away from the personal and moving it to a group and then predestining that those who make up the group will be predestined to a particular end, okay? And an analogy that I like to use that I think is fair to the corporate election position uh, it's it's a cute analogy, but I think it, it works very well. If we were to imagine that I'm going to open up a car wash, and we, for the sake of argument, it's the best car, it's perfect car wash. Every car that goes through that car wash will be 100% sparkly clean. Okay, it'll never fail, and that's analog analogous to uh, God's never failing. He pre if he predestines that those in Christ will be made holy and blameless, right? Everyone who enters Christ by faith will be without fail made holy and blameless. So if I open up a car wash, right? and every car that goes through that car wash is 100% sparkly clean, then it can be said that I am predestining that whatever cars go through my car wash will be made 100% sparkly clean. But notice something. I'm not predestining which cars go through the car wash. I'm just predestining that whatever cars do go through the car wash will be made clean. And that is what is going on in corporate election. God is not predestining who will be made holy and blameless. He's not predestining who will be saved. He's not predestining who will believe. He's just predestining that those who do believe will be made holy and blameless. 
So keep that in mind. The concept is simple, but as you're going to see, it's, it's not simple to fit it into Ephesians 1 and get around what is so clearly being said about God choosing people and God predestining people, okay? The way he's going to word it is, is going to make it sound like it's being consistent with the passage because he's going to use terms like in Christ and the faithful in Christ, but he does not mean by those terms what most other people, especially Calvinists, mean by those terms, okay? So just keep that in mind. And I just want you to ask yourself, after having just gone through Ephesians, and especially the key verses, where God chose us, God predestined us, and having been predestined according to God's purpose, he works all things after the counsel of his will, what is just the basic reading that, that anybody's going to get, right? Just just think about it. If, if I come up to you and I say, hey, guess what? We're both Christians, right? We're both faithful in Christ, right? You say, yeah, of course. And I say, well, guess what? God chose us. In Christ before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless, and he predestined us to adoption. What would be your automatic understanding of that? You would say, oh wow, so you mean the reason that I'm believing right now and have been adopted is because God chose me in Christ before the foundation of the world and predestined me to that that end, that adoption? That's amazing. That's awesome. That's really cool. That's just the basic understanding of it. But when people are faced with that obvious obvious reading and they begin to think oh well well then maybe and they think past that automatic you know re- reaction and they start thinking oh well that must mean then that I didn't really have the ultimate quote unquote ultimate determinative free will say in my eternal destiny well that, I can't have that and so we've got to find a way around that and that is what you are about to hear and so let's hear what Leighton says and puts, puts forth as his view of corporate election in Ephesians 1. And um, given how much I'm going to chop this up looking ahead, I think it's fair if I let the three or four minutes play through itself. I want to let you hear all of what he has to say, right? We've gone through Ephesians 1, and I've presented what I believe to be the obvious reading. I've told you the difference between conditional election, unconditional election as the mainstreams, and the corporate election view that you're about to hear. So let's just be fair, let it all play through, and then I will chop it up and respond back through it. Let's go, let's go through Ephesians, shall we, just briefly. Who does he choose? Go back to our, our statement out here. Who does he choose? We don't, we don't have to guess who he chose. He didn't choose just random people before the foundation of the world, or I shouldn't say random. I, I don't know. Arbitrary, can't use that either, apparently. Uh, unilaterally picked people, okay, for no apparent reason. We can't just say just like a divine lottery. It, it's what it seems like. No. Who are the people that Paul is referring to in Ephesians chapter 1? Just look look at the text with me. Paul, an apostle of Christ, by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus, who are faithful in Christ Jesus. So who is he talking to? The faithful in Christ Jesus. Now, Calvinist, who are those who are in Christ? Those with faith. Where are the people who are elected located? In Christ. And why are they located in Christ? Because they're faith. They believe. It's, it's not, this is not rocket surgery, as they say, right? This is, this is very, very simple if you understand it from our perspective. I'm not trying to be derogatory. I'm just saying you've got to understand both sides of the aisle in order to bring critique. And apparently some Calvinists don't even understand what we're trying to say. Yes, he chose the faithful in Christ Jesus to be made holy and blameless. And this was his plan from the beginning of the world, from the very foundation of the world. God's plan, his, 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 his destiny for those who are in Christ through faith is that we would be made holy and blameless. We all agree with that. 
but it's not just some arbitrary choice. It's not some unilateral pick before creation, like a divine lottery of sorts. He picks the faithful who are in Christ Jesus to be made holy and blameless. Grace to you and peace from our God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be God, the Father of Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. The term in Christ is used over a dozen times in the sentence that we're getting into here. Just as he chose us in him, in Christ, who is the us in him? People unilaterally picked before they're ever born or the faithful in Christ Jesus, which makes more sense. I didn't exist before the foundation of the world. Did you? I'm not an eternally existent one. Christ is. Christ is the eternally existent elect one. Okay. He is our head. He's the, you want to talk about federal headship. Christ is our federal head. He existed before the foundation of the world. I didn't. You can't select somebody who doesn't exist, right? So what is he electing? He is electing the faithful who are in Christ Jesus for what? That we should be holy and blameless before him. Looks like sanctification to me. Same thing he says over in Romans chapter 8. He has chosen, he is predestined for those who are in him, the faithful in Christ, those who love him and are called according to his purpose, verse 28, to be conformed into the image of his son, to be made blameless and holy before him. So God, before the foundation of the world, has set the parameters, destined, marked out the parameters. That's what predestination is. Is The destination is marked out beforehand. For who? For those unilaterally picked for no apparent reason? No. For the faithful in Christ Jesus. He is our federal head. He is the elect one. You are elect only insofar as you're in him. And how do you get to be in him? Look at verse 13. Really, really simple as you look at what scripture says as to how one gets to be in Christ Jesus. In him, you also, after, so when's after? After listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. Having believed, you were sealed in him. So when are you sealed in Christ? Before the foundation of the world, before you even exist? No, you're sealed in Christ after after listening to the message of truth, after believing, having also believed, you are sealed in him. So you're not sealed in him until you believe in time, temporally, right then and there. But God has destined, marked out the destination beforehand for those who are in Christ through faith for these ends. Now, there's nothing new about this interpretation of the text of being elect in Christ, of being elect in him through faith. Nothing new about that. But very few times will you actually hear Calvinist scholars deal with those interpretations and deal with what we're actually trying to say or representing those interpretations. And so we're just going to hold them to that standard. That's where we're going to push back on those things based upon their, their representation of us and hold them to a standard, hopefully, that we would hold ourselves to with regard to those things. Now, all right, so that was exactly four minutes uh, almost. And there you have it. Okay, so obviously a majorly different interpretation of Ephesians 1. And I just want to say, I'm not being sarcastic when I say this. Leighton does a very good job of laying out that particular view in Ephesians 1, okay? It's very convincing. Um, he's well-spoken, and he's got it laid out in his mind, and he's able to just go through and make it sound like, oh, look, it's just so obvious, right? That God isn't actually choosing us. I mean, we don't exist yet, and blah, 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 and we're only in Christ when we believe, so the in Christ must mean a plan, and, you know, you heard it all, and it is very convincing to people, Okay? So what I want to go through and show, though, as we break it down, is that if you go verse by verse and you follow basic things like pronouns, like us and we, um, you can't get it to say what he's making it, trying to make it say. Okay? So that's what we're going to do right now. We're going to go back through it. Let's go, let's go through Ephesians, shall we? Just briefly. Who does he choose? Go back to our, our statement out here. Who does he choose? We don't, we don't have to guess who he chose. He didn't choose just random people before the foundation of the world, or I shouldn't say random, 
Now, he didn't choose random people, but he did choose people, right? So he's asking, who did God choose? God, and he's admitting God chose people, but he's going to later on say that God didn't actually choose people because we didn't exist and you can't choose something that doesn't exist. We'll get to that, but just notice something. Who did God choose, right? Whether or not Calvinist and unconditional election is right or conditional election is right, whether or not God was randomly choosing people is irrelevant to the fact that God was still choosing people. And that's unavoidable from the passage. God chose us. We are people. Just keep that in mind. I don't know. Arbitrary. Can't use that either, apparently. Well, and again, we covered in the last episode why unconditional election is not random. It's not arbitrary because God's choice is active. He was not reactively choosing some people over others. He was not comparing people. He was not choosing people who met particular conditions. His reasons for choosing people are ingrained in and grounded in his reasons for creating them. And and in this case, salvation, the end of salvation right? It just goes back to the, the, the divine author once again. If an author, can an author of a story be said to be choosing his characters? Obviously, yes. But when you stop and think about it, that is an active choice. Authors of stories don't look out at a bunch of possible characters that they have nothing to do with and think, well, I'll choose that one because he fits this purpose, and I'll choose that one because he fits this purpose, and I'll do what I can with that one. And he doesn't do it reactively. An author actively determines every aspect of his characters, but it can still be said that he's choosing his characters, right? He chose the way this, the characters would be. Okay? Keep that in mind. Uh, unilaterally picked people, okay, for no apparent reason. We can't just say it's like a divine lottery. It's what it seems like. No. Who are the people that Paul is referring to in Ephesians chapter 1? Just look look at the text with me. Paul, an apostle of Christ, by the will of God. No, he, he's just <laughs> he's going to skip over by the will of God and not really explain what it means. I would just like to say that my guess is, from the free will standpoint, the will of God comes in the form of open doors and opportunities, right? And I don't think that's a misrepresentation at all, given what you're about to hear from Leighton in the corporate election view, which is that God provided a system or a plan whereby people with their free will can come along and take part. So this whole idea of by the will of God is just, well, God made it possible, and I guess when someone with their free will comes along and finally actualizes it, then we still get to sound like good little Christians and say it was by the will of God, because without God, it wouldn't have been possible, and blah, blah, blah. That is so clearly, as I went through Ephesians 1, not what Paul is talking about. But anyways, uh, well, let's get back to what he's saying. My, my point here is he's, he's skipping over um, the whole will of God part. Paul, an apostle of Christ, by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus, who are faithful in Christ Jesus. So who is he talking to? The faithful in Christ Jesus. That's correct. He's talking to people who are right now in time, faithful in Jesus Christ. Keep that in mind, okay? Paul is speaking to people who are already existing in time and are faithful in Christ in time. Just keep that in mind. Now, Calvinist, who are those who are in Christ? Those with faith. Yes, in time we become, quote-unquote, in Christ through faith, okay? But but this listen to the theological sleight of hand that Leighton just pulled, right? Or I should say that's about to take place because he hasn't read uh, verse 4 yet. But he's going to blur the the difference. He's going to combine and blur and try to distort the distinction between being in Christ through faith in time with being chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world. He's not going to recognize that there's a difference between being chosen in Christ in terms of God's eternal plan of salvation for a particular person in Christ 
and being in Christ in time salvifically. There's so clearly, for anybody reading the, the passage, a difference in those two in Christ's, um, but this is what he's going to try to do with this little bit of theological side of hand. He's going to say that in Christ, it only means believing in Christ in time and being saved. Where are the people who are elected located? In Christ. And why are they located in Christ? Because they're faith. They believe. It's, it's not, this is not rocket surgery, as they say. Okay, you see that? Where are the people who are elected located, right? Well, the ones he's talking to and writing to, they're in Christ salvifically by faith. Yeah, there's no denying that. In time, okay? There's no argument there. Why are people who exist in time located in Christ? Because they believe. Yes, that's true. But that's different than asking why are people located in Christ in eternity past, right? In terms of God's salvific plan for those people in Christ. They're in Christ because God chose them in Christ. That's what the next verse he's about to read is going to say word for word, right? Where are, where are they located? Well, are you talking about in time or, or eternity past? Because the question is asking a present tense question, where are they located? But where were they located, right? Before they existed, they were located in Christ, in the mind of God, in his plan and purpose for their entire existence, right? So, so don't confuse being in Christ in time with being chosen in Christ in eternity past. And, and for example, later on in verse 9, the phrase in Christ is used, and yet the phrase in Christ in verse 9 is not referring to specifically um, people saved in time in Christ. It says, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ. Right? God's eternal purpose before the foundation of the world, which he set forth in Christ. So even though, yes, in Christ is used a lot in this passage, it's not being used in identical ways. There's an eternal plan and purpose in Christ. And then, yes, there are people who are in time believing in Christ, right? But you got to, if you're going to hold a corporate election, you have to blur, blur the distinction, make them just people being in Christ in time to even begin to make your system sound uh, like it's being part of the passage. We can look at another verse, same author, same book, three chapters later. Ephesians 3.11, this was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord. So again, there's a use of in Christ that is referring to the eternal purpose of God in Christ. We can look over at another verse, 2 Timothy 1.9. Listen to this one. God saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, there's purpose again, which he gave us in Christ before the ages began. So he gave us his own purpose and grace in Christ before the ages began. That is why we are called. That is why we are right now believing. That's, that's what is being said. And again, in Christ before the ages began is referring to his purpose, the purpose and grace which he gave us, people, in Christ before the ages began. And he's actually going to deny, in just a second here, he's going to deny the, even the possibility that you could have existed in the mind of God in Christ in terms of God's salvific plan. Right? This is, this is very, very simple if you understand it from our perspective. I'm not trying to be derogatory. I'm just saying you've got to understand both sides of the aisle in order to bring critique. And apparently some Calvinists don't even understand what we're trying to say. Yes, he chose the faithful in Christ Jesus to be made holy and blameless. And this was his plan from the beginning of the world. From the very foundation of the world, God's plan, his, 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 his destiny for those who are in Christ through faith is that we would be made holy and blameless. We all agree with that. Yeah, well, the problem is that there's all the difference in the world between saying that God chose specific people in Christ before the foundation of the world, 
that they, those specific people, would be holy and blameless. There's a difference between saying that and saying that God chose that those who end up in Christ in time will be holy and blameless, right? Big difference there. One is what the verse is saying, and the other is not what the passage is saying. I don't know how you can read Ephesians 1 and end up saying that those who end up in Christ in time will be holy and blameless, right? God chose you in Christ before the foundation of the world that you would be holy and blameless. You get out of that that those who end up in Christ in time will be holy and blameless. And the only way you can get that is, once again, if you forcefully uh, distort the distinction between being chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world and being in Christ through faith in time. There's a difference in those two things. And it's not that what he's saying is not a true statement in and of itself, right? Those who enter Christ by faith in time will be made holy and blameless. That's a true statement for for any side of of, of the aisle, any side of the debate. That's a true statement. But that's not the point of Ephesians 1. When Ephesians 1 is saying what it's saying, the point of Ephesians 1 is not that those who end up in Christ in time will be made holy and blameless. The point is that God has chosen people that those people would be made holy and blameless. And he predestines those people to adoption. He predestines those people to be made holy and blameless. That's the point of Ephesians 1. So this is another, I'm, I'm adding on these this list of reasons why corporate election can sound really good. It's saying a lot of true things. It just doesn't mean what, what you necessarily think it means from the outset. Yes, those who are in Christ will be made holy and blameless. But that's not the point of Ephesians 1. The point, the point of Ephesians 1 is that those who end up in Christ were chosen in Christ. They were predestined to be made holy and blameless. That's the point of Ephesians 1. And this is another f- example of a phrase that sounds, um, that can be true in and of itself, right? God chose the faithful in Christ. Okay, but, but how do you understand that? Leighton understands that differently than we do. Same phrase, God chose the faithful in Christ before the foundation of the world. But according to Leighton, he didn't actually choose the people specifically who are faithful in Christ. He just chose that there would be a group of people known as the faithful in Christ, but the group is made up of and determined by the people themselves, not by God. And the Calvinist point, and what I believe Ephesians 1 clearly teaches, is that the group of the faithful in Christ is the way that it is because God determined who would be in the group. He chose us in Christ and predestined us to adoption. So when that group, as time unfolds, when that group starts being made up of believers and believers and more believers and more believers, it is the people whom God chose individualistically, right? It is not a group that is just there that people with their free will come along and fill up. So just another example of a phrase that can sound really good, but is being used subtly in a completely different way. So you got to be careful and try to follow this this theological sleight of hand that's taking place here when he's going to start using these phrases, because remember, he's trying to get away from God choosing individuals. As he's going to go on to say, and I'll play this part again, God is choosing a plan, right? Listen to this part again. Yes, he chose the faithful in Christ Jesus to be made holy and blameless. And this was his plan from the beginning of the world. See, what he means by that is that God chose that the faithful in Christ Jesus would be holy and blameless. God chose that those who end up being faithful in Christ Jesus will be holy and blameless. Okay? That's what he means when he says that. 
he tries to say it to make it sound like the passage, but that's what he means. Because again, this choice that God makes takes place in eternity past. And you're insisting that you can only be in Christ. The only sense in which you can be in Christ is through faith in time. So what is it? What do you mean he chose the faithful in Christ? Right? You and I are faithful in Christ right now, I would assume. So did God choose us as individuals? That's not what you mean when you say God chose the faithful in Christ. But remember, this took place before the foundation of the world. So what you mean is that God chose a plan. Listen to this. From the very foundation of the world, God's plan, his, 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 his destiny for those who are in Christ through faith is that we would be made holy and blameless. We all agree with that. His destiny for those who are faithful in Christ is that they will be holy and blameless. That's not what the passage says, dude. I'm sorry. That's just not what the passage says. It doesn't say that he predestined that those who in time are faithful in Christ will be holy and blameless or be adopted. It's not what it says. It says he predestined us. The people who are believing, yeah, we're believing in time, but it's because he chose us and predestined us. That's what the verse, that's what the passage is saying. But it's not just some arbitrary choice. It's not some unilateral pick before creation, like a divine lottery of sorts. He picks the faithful who are in Christ Jesus to be made holy and blameless. Right, but that's, you know, that's not what the verse is saying. Right? God's choice of these believers in Christ took place in eternity past. They weren't believers in Christ in eternity past, which is logically, it's hard to use the word when before, before the foundation of the world, but logically when God chose them, they didn't exist yet. They weren't believers in Christ, right? They, they existed in his mind as, as a planned person, a planned creation, right? So when you say, He picks the faithful who are in Christ Jesus, to be made holy and blameless. You're using a present tense. He picks the faithful who are in, he picks those who are faithful in Christ like right now. But but the choice was made in eternity past. Right? When does he pick them? Eternity past. Right? He makes this statement as if God is picking them in time when they believe. He picks the faithful who are in Christ Jesus. He picks the faithful who are in Christ Jesus. To be made holy and blameless. That's a present tense picks. He's, he, it doesn't make any sense, and it destroys the entire point of the verse that he's about to read. He's, he, he hasn't even read the verse yet, but, but he's trying to set this up so that when he reads the verse, you'll see what he's trying to say. But the passage does not say he picks the faithful in Christ. It doesn't say that he chooses those who will end up believing in, in Christ. Right? The passage tells people who are right now believing that the ultimate reason they are right now believing in Christ is because God chose them in eternity past. One is the result of the other. One is the outplay of the other. And once you start pointing this out, this is the thing about the corporate election view, especially with Leighton. I have to give him credit. He presents it very smoothly, very well, and it can sound really good to people until you start asking questions like, wait a minute, you're, he picks he picks the faithful in Christ, but he it should be a past tense picked, not picks. He picked. He picked the faithful in Christ, but that would that would be individual. He picked us, is what the verse says. But of course, at this point he would accuse me of not properly understanding. No, no, no. He's not picking people in the first place. He's not picking individuals at all. He's picking that. And he leaves the word that out. The word that more accurately and clearly and honestly explains 
the corporate election view. Because when he keeps trying to say that he picks the faithful in Christ to be, it, again, sounds great to everybody because it sounds like the verse, but that makes it sound like he's picking people because people are faithful in Christ. He's picking the faithful in Christ, but according to the corporate election view, he's not picking people. He's picking that, he's choosing that those who end up faithful in Christ will be X, Y, and Z. Grace to you and peace from our God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be God, the Father of Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. The term in Christ is used over a dozen times in this sentence that we're getting into here. Yeah, it's, it's used quite a bit, and yet there's a difference, once again, between being chosen in Christ in eternity past and being entering into Christ through faith in time. If, if you can't see that difference, then, then, you know... I know you can see it, but you 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 want to you have to shut your eyes to it to make your interpretation work. Just as he chose us in him in Christ, who is the us in him? Who is the us in him? Individuals who are in time faithful in Christ. Yes, they were chosen. People unilaterally picked before they're ever born, or the faithful in Christ Jesus. Well, it says they that it, it says he chose us before the foundation of the world. So yeah, the choice of us, people, took place before we were born. That's literally word for word what the verse says. And I just have to ask, how else could it be worded, right? What would what would it have to say for it to be teaching that God chose us as people before we were born, before the world existed, in eternity past, before the foundation of the world? What would it have to say? It can't say anything other than he chose us using personal pronouns. Okay? So, yes, people who are right now faithful in Christ, the verse says that they, as persons, personal pronoun, we, us, God chose us in Christ. Okay? But he keeps trying to word this as an impersonal group. God is choosing not personal individuals. God, in his view, is choosing an undefined group known as the faithful in Christ. Right? He chose the group but not individuals that make up that group, right? That's that's corporate election, and that's what he's trying to make the passage say. But you can't get around the pronouns. You can't get around he chose us. You can't get around he predestined us. Both of those actions took place in eternity past, right, before we were in time faithful in Christ. So what's, you know, this is the entire point. The reason we are right now faithful in Christ is because he chose us and predestined us. That's the point of Ephesians 1. Which makes more sense. I didn't exist before the foundation of the world. Did you? I'm not an eternally existent one. Christ is. Christ is the eternally existent <laughs> elect one. You didn't exist before the foundation of the world. No kidding. I've, I've always sort of chuckled when, when Leighton mentions this as if it's even beginning to be close to an argument. So what if we did not exist in eternity past? As, as in terms of a physical creation, right? So what? We obviously existed in the mind of God. It doesn't matter which side of the argument you're on here. You believe that you existed in the mind of God, right? And it's amazing for anyone to try to say that since you didn't exist in eternity past, therefore God must not or could not have been choosing you as an individual in Christ before the foundation of the world. You think you seriously think that's what Paul meant? <laughs> I mean... Again, how else can it be worded? If Paul wanted to say 
that the, the reason you're believing right now is because God chose you in Christ and predestined you, blah, blah, blah. He's talking to people and using words like us. How else can it be said? I mean, this argument of, well, you didn't exist, it, it would destroy so many other parts of the Bible where God is saying, said to be foreknowing people or choosing people or, you know, any, any of these sorts of things. The only logical worldview in which you not existing prior to, you know, in the foundation, before the foundation of the world would, would actually matter would be an open theist view, right? Where God is not considering the people he's going to create, right? Nobody exists yet. God doesn't know who's going to exist yet. That's the only view in which this particular argument would, would make any sense at all. But for any other Christian, of course you existed in the mind of God in eternity past. Okay, he is our head. He's the, you want to talk about federal headship. Christ is our federal head. He existed before the foundation of the world. I didn't. You can't select somebody who doesn't exist, right? And, and there you have it, right? You can't select somebody who doesn't exist. God's not selecting individuals who don't yet exist. Therefore, he must be selecting a plan a yet-to-be-filled group of non-existent people known as the faithful in Christ, right? And, and it's funny because he can't even say that God in eternity past chose those who would be faithful in Christ, as mainstream Arminians do, because even that would admit that God was choosing individuals. And Leighton, Leighton can't have that, right? He can't have that. can't select somebody who doesn't exist, right? That, that's laughable. Of course you can God can plan and purpose and choose people for specific purposes as their creator before they exist. Of course he can, right? Of course he can. It's, this is one of the weakest arguments I've ever come across. So what is he electing? He's electing the faithful who are in Christ Jesus. So he's electing, and, and notice what he just said there. He's actually just come out and said, what is God electing instead of who? He's just completely abandoned Paul's entire line of thinking. Paul's saying he chose us, he predestined us, and listen to this. So what is he electing? He is electing the faithful who are in Christ Jesus. What is he electing? As if it's a group, right? It's it's hard to to sort of interact with this with a, with a straight face. I mean, he just said, what is God electing? Maybe it was a slip-up. Maybe it was a slip-up. But again, for Leighton, in a corporate election view, it's not who is God electing, it's what is God electing. It's a plan. It's an unfilled group of yet-to-be people. Because remember, the choice takes place in eternity past. God is not choosing people in time, right? That's, the verse doesn't say God chose us in time because we were faithful. It doesn't say that. It says it cho he chose us in before the foundation of the world, right? And, and again, he's not, even, he's not even electing those who would be faithful in, in, in Leighton's view, right? He's just electing... This the faithful in Christ as, as a group of undefined people, right? And I'm sorry to, to split this up and comment so much, but if you don't pinpoint these things, then I have to admit, even I'll admit, it's hard to pick up on it, right? This is this view of corporate election, which once again Leighton does such a good job with. It is out of all the topics that I've that I've studied and 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 it, it's it's one of the best theological sleight of hands that that people can pull off because it, it sounds just like it's the faithful in christ that's who he's choosing but it's not a who in your viewpoint it's a what right what so what is he electing he is electing the faithful who are in christ jesus for what that we should be holy and blameless before him 
And if you were to just take this, well, you can't choose something or someone who doesn't exist concept, it would just obliterate cover to cover the entire Bible. I mean, I mentioned already uh, Psalm 139.16 that before you existed, when as yet there was none, God formed your days for you. Well, well, how? you don't exist yet. God can't form the days for someone who doesn't exist. That just doesn't make any sense. Well, what are you talking about? Of course it makes sense. The verse says, when as yet there was none, God formed my days for me. Me, personal, right? So I didn't exist yet, and God forms my days for me. If God could form my days for me when I don't exist, certainly he can choose me in Christ before the foundation of the world, before I exist. I mean, give me a break. For what? That we should be holy and blameless before him. Looks like sanctification to me. Same thing he says over in Romans chapter 8. Yeah, so sanctification, again. Um, anything that we undergo in time is the outplay of what God has predestined. All of it, right? Not just after we become faithful in Christ, but all of it. But he tries to make this say that God has predestined not that certain people will be made holy and blameless, but he has predestined that whoever believes will be holy and blameless. In the same way that I have a car wash, I'm predestining that whatever cars go through come out clean. I'm not predestining which cars actually go through. Um, this is the difference. This is the distinction. It's subtle, but it makes all the difference in the world. And you just have to ask once again, which view is more consistent with the entire reading of the passage? Okay. When, when, when he's going to conclude in verse 11 by saying, God, according to the purpose of God who is working all things after the counsel of his will, is that really all things from start to finish? According to the corporate election view, he's not working all things from start to finish. He's only working the after, the after facts, right? He's only working that when people enter Christ. Then he works out that they'll be holy and blameless. Then he works out their adoption. Then he works out, in this case, as we're talking about sanctification. But the point of Paul is that he's working it all from start to finish, each and every step along the way. Same thing he says over in Romans chapter 8. He is chosen, he is predestined for those who are in him, the faithful in Christ, those who love him and are called according to his purpose, verse 28. Listen, this is why it's so subtle. You don't pick up on it, you're going to miss it. Listen to this again. He is predestined for those who are in him. He has predestined for those who are in him? That's not what Romans 8 says. Romans 8 says, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. Those whom he foreknew, people, he predestined them to be conformed to the image of his son. He didn't predestine for, again, corporate election, he did not predestine for those who would be in him to be made conformed to the image of his son. Those whom he foreknew, he predestined. And this is how, with just a subtle twist, you can make a verse say something it's not. Same thing he says over in Romans chapter 8. He is chosen, he is predestined for those who are in him, the faithful in Christ, those who love him and are called according to his purpose, verse 28, to be conformed into the image of his son, to be made blameless and holy before him. Right, but he didn't predestine that for people specifically. He predestined that for those who would be in Christ and faithful and so on and so forth. He predestined the plan, he predestined the end result, but he didn't predestine specifically who was there. That is not what Romans 8.28 says. Or verse 29, I should say. Excuse me. That's Verse 29 says, Those whom God foreknew, he predestined. Again, the most critical question you can ask of this entire, both of these passages, 
Who or what is God choosing? Is it a what or is it a who? In both passages, it's a who. It's people. And who or what is God predestining? Is it a what or is it a who? It's a who in both passages. He predestined us, and those whom he foreknew he predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. Right? It's all personal. Both both passages by the same author, it's all personal. And I just want to really point out that if you're going to try to pass, as Leighton is, this corporate election view, all the way down the line, God is he is choosing plans, not people. He is predestining plans and not people. Okay? You have to keep that in mind as we go through. Completely different, different, it, it's just a, a, an ignoring of the, the verses themselves to try to make your free will-based system sound like the passage. So God, before the foundation of the world, has set the parameters, destined, marked out the parameters. That's what predestination is. Is The destination is marked out beforehand. See? Just the destination. He's set up the system. He's, he's made it possible. He's built the car wash. And now it's open for business. For who? For those unilaterally picked for no apparent reason? Uh, no, not for random people, but for people, specifically, as I've been demonstrating over and over and over and over and over. doesn't matter where you run Ephesians 1, Romans 8. It's us, 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 all the way down the line, specific people. No, for the faithful in Christ Jesus. Yeah, the people specifically who are faithful in Christ Jesus, they were predestined. They were called. They were justified. They were glorified. They were chosen. Them, people. He is our federal head. He is the elect one. You are elect only insofar as you're in him. And how do you get to be in him? Look at verse 13. Really, really simple as you look at what Scripture says as to how one gets to be in Christ Jesus. You're elect only insofar as you're in him. Where's that verse? Where is that verse? You're only elect insofar as you're in... So again, when God chose us, he wasn't really choosing us because we're not yet in Christ because we don't exist, so we can't actually be chosen yet. We're chosen in time when we enter Christ. Then we become elect. We become chosen. This is, again, really, really... It, it's it's insane, and and yet people when it when it when they lay it out so smoothly, it sounds great. People eat it up because it's not Calvinism. As long as it's not Calvinism, it sounds great. But guys, listen to this again. You're only he is our federal head. He is the elect one. You are elect only insofar as you're in him. And how do you get to be in him? Look at verse thirteen. So you get to be in him by free will, according to the corporate election view. So you make yourself chosen. You make yourself elect. And just just think about what this does to all of the rest of the New Testament when it talks about God's elect, right? This is how they get to fit free will into their system. And quite literally, they might not admit what, I, what I'm saying here, that you make yourself elect, but that is literally what it is. God didn't actually choose you, uh, but you made yourself chosen in time when you believed. You made yourself elect, right? And so when you start pointing at other places in the New Testament where it starts talking about God's chosen, God's chosen, and you ask the simple question, but did God choose them? Well, they, they could just say, well, yes, of course. They're, I mean, they're elect and blah, blah, blah. But again, go back to the, the car wash analogy. You didn't choose which cars went through the car wash. The best you can say is you chose the plan. You chose the result. You chose that the cars would be made clean. But once those cars go through and they're made clean... You don't get to say that you chose those cars. They chose your car wash, not the other way around, right? And that's why ultimately, in the end of the day, we have a completely opposite view of the order 
right? The determinative ultimate order of the choices between man and God. In the Calvinistic worldview, you chose God in time because he ultimately chose you in eternity past, right? You chose God because he first, logically first, chose you. But in the free will worldview, especially in the corporate election worldview, God chooses you, you become elect because you choose him, right? He sets up the plan, but you choose him, and then you can be said to be chosen by him. It's a reversal of the logical order. You've set man up as being the ultimate determiner of God's choice, rather than God's choice being the ultimate determiner of man's choice. Really, really simple as you look at what scripture says as to how one gets to be in Christ Jesus. Right. And yet, how do you get by your own free will, when you don't exist yet, how do you get to be chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world? God's the only one that can do that, right? And I just have to quickly bring up uh, a single solitary verse, right, that completely destroys what he just said, that you're only elect insofar as you're in him, in time, believing. Second Timothy 2.10 says, everybody knows this verse because it's always used by Calvinists, for good reason, for this specific reason. Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, the chosen, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. Now, how can you be enduring things for the sake of chosen people who are not yet, who have not yet obtained the salvation in Christ if you get to be elect by obtaining the salvation in Christ through faith? This verse completely destroys what he just said, that you're only elect insofar as you're in Christ. Completely destroys it. Right? I endure everything for the sake of the elect, the chosen, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. In him you also, after, so when's after? After listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having believed you were sealed in him. So when are you sealed in Christ? Before the foundation of the world, before you even exist? No, you're sealed in Christ in time when you believe. And that is not at all a contradiction to God choosing you in Christ before the foundation of the world at all. doesn't contradict it at all. No, you're sealed in Christ after, after listening to the message of truth. After believing, having also believed, you are sealed in him. So you're not sealed in him until you believe. Yeah, no problem there. That, that does not in any way support your position, right? He's trying to put this out as if, since you're sealed in time in Christ, since you, you, you become sealed in Christ through faith in time, that therefore you must not have been chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world, right? So therefore we get to insert this idea of corporate election, and it just does not follow, right? My viewpoint, the Calvinistic viewpoint, has no issue with what you just said. We are sealed in Christ in time through faith, and it is part of what God is working out. He skips all the way to 13, skips over 11, Right, which says that predestined, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things. What does that predestination include? Being sealed in Christ in time through faith. In time, temporally, right then and there. But God has destined, marked out the destination beforehand for those who are in Christ through faith for these ends. Right, and there you have it reiterated again. God has predestined the ends for those who are in Christ through their free will. And this is when, you know, it's this is over and over and over. Sorry to be repetitive, but... You have to be able to pick up on these things in order to be able to refute this idea of corporate election. And I just have to stop because verse 11, which he skipped over, 
is is so critical to the the Calvinist position and this this passage as a whole, right? It's this it's the summary and the 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 assurance of the fact that what God has predestined will come to pass. God works all things after the counsel of His will. How does that work in corporate election? How do you fit the phrase "all things" into that? Because if corporate election is true, all God is working and all God is ensuring will come to pass are the after effects of salvation, the after effects of the the free will faith of the person. God is working and ensuring that once you believe, you will be made holy and blameless, you will be conformed to his image, you will be adopted, so on and so forth. But God isn't working all things by definition if that's if that's all that's applicable to, because he's, you know, the entire point of corporate election is he's not working your faith, is he? Your faith is not part of the all things that he's working. There's nothing new about this interpretation of the text of being elect in Christ, of being elect in him through faith. Nothing new about that. But very few times will you actually hear Calvinist scholars deal with those interpretations. Well, we're trying to do it here. And again, not a single verse in the Bible will tell you that you become elect in Christ in time. Right? Not a single verse in the Bible will support what you just said. And deal with what we're actually trying to say or representing those interpretations. And so we're just going to hold them to the standard. It's where we're going to push back on those things based upon their, their representation of us and hold them to a standard, hopefully, that we would hold ourselves to with regard to those things. Now... And that's fair, and that's fine. And I'm I'm pushing back on your interpretation of Ephesians one and showing that you you have completely avoided all the pronouns. You've forced uh, uh, removing the distinction between in Christ in the mind of God in terms of a plan and in Christ in time. And you've said some fairly amazing things like God can't even pick you if you don't exist yet. I mean, these are the types of things you have to commit to. These absurdities you have to commit to to make. Your corporate election system fit the text. This is what happens, guys, when you have to force free will, the thing that you will never let go of, right? Instead of reading Ephesians 1 and seeing that it's all ultimately God, it, yes, you play a part, yes, you believe, yes, but it's all ultimately God's will, God's purpose. From the start to finish, he's working it all. Instead of saying, well, man, I guess then I just, I'll let go of this idea of free will because it's just so clearly not there. You refuse to let go of free will, and as a result, you have to twist the life out of it. You have to twist the entire concept of what Ephesians 1 is saying into this idea of corporate election, right? When the entire point of Ephesians 1 is, hey, Christians, guess what? Here's why you're Christians. Why are you right now believing in time? Because this is what God has done. He's chosen you, he's predestined you, and he's working it all, right? And I just want to ask one more time, what would the Bible have to say for personal election to be true? right? What would it have to say? And half of me, I'm 50-50 on this, half of me says you can't think up, use your imagination, you can't think up a more clear, better way of saying that God chose people in Christ than saying, hey Christians, guess what? God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. How could you put more better word it? Half of me says you can't even think one up. The other half of me says, even if you could think one up, and I challenge anybody too, I could take the exact same subtle twisting of the concept that you that Leighton here has applied to Ephesians 1 and God choosing people for the foundation of the world and apply it to whatever statement you're going to give me that you think would be better, I could make the same argument. I could make that corporate election as well. I could take the statement that you think is necessary to make the Bible teach personal election, and I could use the same type of argumentation to make it say or seem like corporate election. And this just goes to show Calvinism, uh, Ephesians 1, in my opinion, is, is Calvinism word for word, you can't be any more clear, and it just shows that no matter what the Bible says, in certain instances, people are just 
they're going to find ways around it. If you can find a way around personal election in Ephesians 1 and Romans 8, you can find a way around anything, anything at all, right? You can find a way around anything if you can find a way to make Ephesians 1 this idea of corporate election. Now, we're getting towards the end, and I just want to hammer home one last point. Because the great irony here is at the end of the day, corporate election seeks to remove the idea of personal election and make it impersonal, right? God is not choosing specific people before the foundation of the world. He's just choosing a group that will someday be filled by people. But the, 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 the problem with this, once again, is when you bring up the foreknowledge of God. The foreknowledge of God, as I have said before, is the absolute death knell to the free will position. The foreknowledge of God will always be it the, the greatest hindrance and, and refutation to every aspect of a free will position. And in this case, corporate election, when you bring God's foreknowledge into the picture, even if free will, quote-unquote, were sort of true, where, yeah, you're doing your own thing and so on and so forth, God's foreknowledge does not, it, it makes it impossible for even corporate election to get around what's being said. To demonstrate this, I'll use an example that those who hold a corporate ele election like to use a lot. They'll say, for example, I can predestine, predetermine that a, an airplane will leave one destination and go to another I can predestine that the airplane will go from California to New York, but that doesn't mean that I have predestined who will take that plane, right? Might sound great, but when you realize that God knows the future of his own actions, and God knows that by predestining a particular thing, or in my example, I know that by predestining that a plane will go from here to there, I am also knowing who is going to take advantage of that. And it gets even worse for you when you realize that that's enough of a point when whether or not I have anything to do with the people who are going to take advantage of that, that flight, right? By predestining that flight, I am causing people to take advantage of that flight. And if I do so knowing who will and will not take advantage of that flight, even that view, that corporate view, has me predestining individual people who I know will take that flight. But it gets even worse when you realize that God is predestining in this corporate election view He's predestining this corporate election, but he's he, he is the creator of the very people he knows will or will not take part in that system. So at the end of the day, the foreknowledge of God shows that even corporate election cannot actually escape predestination of individuals. And, and you know, the, the problem here for the, the corporate election view is that foreknowledge of God cannot be ignored when it comes to this issue, Right. God is making his choice in Christ before the foundation of the world, right? That's when the choice is taking place. And so even in the corporate election view, we have to ask, why is God choosing this quote-unquote plan? Why is he making, setting up this plan of salvation in the first place? And they would say, as everybody, you know, from the free will side would say, well, because he foreknew the fall would take place. And you're going down the road of admitting that God knows that sinners will exist. He's going to be the creator of, of those very sinners, he knows exactly which sinners will exist, and he knows exactly which people, when he makes that plan, will or will not take advantage of his plan before he ever creates the universe. So even in eternity past, in the mind of God, when God formulates his corporate election plan, he already knows the identities of all the individuals who will make up that group. So it's like a self-ref... You know, once you bring the foreknowledge of God... It defeats the entire purpose of corporate election of getting away from individual election, because in the end, it still is. 
And this is why corporate election really only works if, you know, if you take an open theist position and deny that God knows the future. Corporate election would sound perfect in, a free, in an open theist view where God doesn't know the future, right? Because now God is setting up a plan, a car wash, that, that will be open for business, but he does it blindly. He has no clue how many people will exist, which people will exist, no clue at all. And he has no clue who will take advantage of his system of salvation. So he does it all blindly. And so it's corporate and it's not individualistic. It's the only, open theism is the only view which would adequately get away from the idea of individual election of God. The foreknowledge of God will always require individualistic election on God's part. And do not let, at this point, the other side will come along and say, the arguments we've covered in previous episodes, just because God foreknows what will happen doesn't mean he determined it. Just because God foreknows who will take advantage of his system does not mean he determined that they will. Once again, God is in control of who does or does not exist. He is the one in ultimate control of how, where, when they exist, all of those details. And he knows the futures even in the free will viewpoint, knows the futures of the results of his own actions. If I create person A in circumstance A, this is what will happen. They'll end up in the group. If I create person A in circumstance B, then they won't end up in the group. Now God makes a choice, and his choice is ultimately determinative of which life that particular person has and whether or not they're part of the salvific corporate election group. So I'm saying all this to say, Don't let them try to get out of this by saying, oh, just because God foreknows it doesn't mean he determined it. It absolutely does. It logically necessitates it because God is once again not foreknowing the results of things he has nothing to do with. God is foreknowing the results of his own actions as creator of the very people he either knows will or will not take part in this corporate election system. So in summary here, guys, I hope you can see that at the end of this, there, the, the concepts are simple, and yet the discussion is very complicated because both sides can be using the exact same phrase and just meaning different things, right? Over and over, Leighton Flowers said, God chose the faithful in Christ. God chose the faithful in Christ. Both sides can say that. The question is, what do you mean by that, right? When you, ha- when you point out at someone that is faithful in Christ, did God choose them? According to Leighton, no. God didn't actually choose those who are or will be or were faithful in Christ. He just chose that whoever by their free will ends up in Christ, ends up faithful in Christ, will be X, Y, and Z. So there's all the difference in the world between between what is meant by those two statements. And you just have to ask yourself which fits the context of the passage. You can't get around the personal pronouns, right? So when God chose the faithful in Christ, yes, those who are faithful in Christ— He chose us, okay? He didn't choose that those by their free will would be X, Y, and Z. This is free will being read into the passage. He also would say things like God predestined. He wants to use predestined. He predestined that those who are faithful in Christ would be made holy and blameless, right? I mean, this is once again is actually a phrase that can be used by both sides. Even in my view, God predestined that those who end up faithful in Christ will be made holy and blameless. But the ultimate question is, is God the determiner of who ends up faithful in Christ or is man with their free will? And when you read Ephesians 1, 
verse 4 says that God chose us. God is the planner and purposer and the determiner of who would end up in Christ in time, right? And if, if, if Ephesians 1 can't teach that, nothing ever could. Once again, words could never teach it. And when he tried to say that you're only chosen, you're only elect insofar as you believe in him, in him, once again, no verse in the Bible says that. No verse in the Bible says that you're only elect when you believe, in time. And you actually have to read Ephesians 1 backwards in order to come up with that interpretation. You have to start in verse 13, where it mentions us believing and being sealed, quote-unquote, in Christ. And then you have to run back to verse 4 and say that since God is choosing you, quote-unquote, in Christ, and blur those in Christ together once again, therefore, you can only be chosen somehow once you end up in Christ in time by faith. That's the only time you can be chosen by God, quote-unquote. But it's not what Ephesians 1 says. When you start from the beginning and go through, you see that you're chosen in Christ in eternity past, and what happens in time, you believing the gospel and being sealed by faith in time, is the outplay of what God has chosen, predestined, and is working. It is all consistent all the way through. right? And so to do what you're doing and pretend like you're letting Paul speak clearly by going to, you know, going to the idea of thir verse 13 and then interpreting all of the rest of it right, in light of that. And that's what's so telling is that's how you're fitting free will into the entire passage is you're jumping all the way to where you are actually doing something. We're taking an action, like I mentioned, we're believing, and you're assuming it's free will belief instead of assuming it's something that God works. You're assuming it's free will belief and then reinterpreting the entire passage in light of that, right? You have to find a way to fit your free will, your unjustified, falsely assumed foundation into the passage. It's the lens through which, you know, you're reading this entire passage, the free will lens. And what's funny is I've always said both sides have lenses. The question is which lens is right. And I'm accusing their side of reading through, a, reading Ephesians 1 through a free will lens. They, what's so funny is if they turn back and say that I, as a Calvinist, am reading Ephesians 1 through my deterministic, meticulous control of God lens, I can just point right at verse 11, right? The verse he skipped, which says that God works all things after the counsel of his will. My lens is justified. My foundation is not assumed. My foundation is Paul's foundation. And it's consistent with everything else he says in Ephesians 1, beginning with verse 1, which says that he is an apostle by the will of God. So verse 11, you know, aside from the personal pronouns, that's the most obvious refutation of the, of the corporate election view, is us, 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 God choosing us, God predestining us. You can't get around the pronouns. The next most obvious thing is verse 11, right, which says that God works all things. If corporate election is true, God is not working all things. Right off the bat, you can just limit the all things, right? He can't be working all things because he's only working the things that he predestined for those who by their free will end up in Christ. He's only working after effects of the free will actions of creatures, but he's not actually working the actions of the creatures themselves, right? Because you're falsely assuming free will once again. So he's not working all things exhaustively. You have to limit the extent of what God works because you're assuming free will, right? You're assuming there are things that ultimately you work. And instead of understanding that the things you do can be part of what God is working, you are ultimately assuming that it's either you or God working things and that there are actually things that you ultimately work that God has to work with or work around. And I've heard people try to say that Ephesians 1 is not teaching that God works all things himself. Ephesians 1 is teaching that God takes what we work and works it. 
But this is a laughable interpretation, because if he's taking something he didn't work and working it, then he's not working all things by definition, because there are things out there that he's not working. It's a self-refuting claim. I've also heard Leighton try to point out and emphasize that um, the, the, the working, the verb of God working things here is a present tense, that God is right now working. He points that out as if it's somehow putting forth this idea that God is working with or working around the free will choices of man. Well, once again, you're assuming free will, and it's causing you to make the verse say something it's not saying. God most certainly is working all things right here and right now, presently. He is always working all things, and that includes your will and your choices. God, pointing to the present tense and saying that God is always right now working things, is so clearly supporting my position that God is in absolute control of all things, that he is working all things, right? And so it includes our will. It includes that we are faithful in Christ by the will of God. Paul was an apostle by the will of God. This is the consistent biblical and logical foundation that I have put forth through the first few episodes that I've put out. God's power upholds every particle of existence moment by moment by moment. Nothing can even occur or come to pass unless God willingly chooses to exert the power necessary for it to come to pass. He upholds the universe by his power. In him all things consist. In him we live and move and have our being. From him and through him and to him are all things. He works all things after the counsel of his will. If you understand all all these things together in a consistent biblical application, there is no confusion and there is no room for free will. So I hope you guys have enjoyed this episode on election in Ephesians 1. I hope it's helped you to see that um, individual election in Ephesians 1 is unavoidable. And I hope it's helped you to see that when you come across this corporate election view that sounds so good, and is using phrases that both sides can actually be using, that you're able to detect and pick up the ways in which the phrases are being used, the assumptions that are being made, and better be able to argue against it. Because until these things can be pointed out, this corporate election view is going to sound really good to people, and they're going to they're going to eat it up and latch onto it because it's not Calvinism. As long as it's not Calvinism, people are going to love it. And uh, so I hope you have enjoyed this. We've got... Um, certainly a couple more episodes lined up that I want to respond to on, on Leighton. He's put out an episode on the idea of the non-free will, free will in Calvinism, which we'll review and demonstrate as a lot of, uh, inconsistencies in the Calvinist position itself when it comes to things like compatibilism. And I, I also want to review an episode that he did on the idea of does free will make you better, uh, than, than the people around you when it comes to you being saved. So uh, look forward to those things. Once again, like and share. You can find Consistent Calvinism Podcast on YouTube and any podcasting app. You can go to the Twitter and and follow at the letter C Calvinism, at C Calvinism, to, see, to hear updates and see discussions on there as well. We'll see you guys next time. Thanks again. Mm-hmm.